I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 51, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 1, pages 182 to 195. During the early part of his career, Lombroso, a disciple of Darwin, evolution, and Galton eugenics, focused much of his attention on phrenology, craniology, the study of character and mental capacity based on the conformation of the skull. He became the leader of what was known at the time as the Italian School of Criminology, distinguished by its adherence to biological determinism rather than free will as being the key factor in criminal behavior. Lombroso's name became virtually synonymous with the term atavism, that is, the reappearance of a characteristic in an organism after several generations of absence. Lombroso applied the term atavist to those persons who had reverted back to primitive or primordial man and who retained an innate potential for antisocial behavior, the born criminal. Lombroso divided criminal types into four categories. One, the born criminal. Two, the criminal by passion. Three, the insane criminal. Four, the occasional criminal. Lombroso placed the pederast in category three, the criminally insane, alongside kleptomaniacs, nymphomaniacs, and habitual drunkards. Such individuals, he claimed, commit crime because of a neurological defect of the brain, which rendered them incapable of determining right from wrong. As a criminal class, they could not be held responsible for their action, he said. Therefore, treatment and social isolation to prevent breeding rather than punishment was preferable in such cases. He distinguished homosexual offenders who had been born as such from those who acquired the vice from barracks or colleges or by a forced celibacy and who would return to their normal sexual appetites when they were introduced back into normal society. Where homosexuality was inborn, however, he recommended that these unfortunates should be confined from their youth, for they are the source of contagion and cause a great number of occasional criminals. As expected, Simmons adamantly objected to Lombroso's classification of pederasty as a form of moral insanity. And although he does not entirely dismiss Lombroso's theory that homosexual practices found among primitive and warlike tribes such as the Tartars and Celts are an indication of cultural atavism, he fiercely rejected the idea that the ancient Greeks should be so classified. Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, 1826-1895. Ulrichs, who used the pen name Numa Numantius, came closest to being a kindred spirit to Simmons, not only because he shared Simmons' homoerotic appetites, but also because he shared Simmons' zeal in removing the prejudice and ignorance that surrounded society's attitudes toward homosexuality. In 1854, Ulrichs took an early forced retirement from his civil servant post as a lawyer after his homosexual activities were made public. Many of Ulrich's writings on sexual inversion were directed at establishing a scientific basis for the theory that the homosexual condition was inborn and immutable, and that the men who possessed these instincts were not inferior in any way to normal men, physically, intellectually, or morally. Like Simmons, Ulrich opened, opposed all laws directed at 
the repression or punishment of such individuals. Ulrich developed his own vocabulary of sexual inversion, one the deoning the normal man, the earning the abnormal man or a male sexual invert, a member of the third sex, the earning gun, a female sexual invert, a member of the fourth sex, the manling, the invert who prefers effeminate males, the wibling, the invert who prefers powerful and masculine adult partners, the swishing earning, the pederast who seeks out adolescent boys as sex partners, the urano-deoning, the bisexual who is attracted to both males and females, the virilisert, the genuine, a genuine invert who forces himself to co-inhabit with women and may even marry, the hermaphrodite. What distinguished Ulrich's writings on sexual inversion from his contemporaries was the emphasis they placed on the sexual invert as a different being or species of man, not simply a person with an abnormal sexual appetite. Ulrich's theories and discourse on the third sex came at a time when the public was already beginning to think of the homosexual as a different type of person rather than simply as a person who engaged in perverted sexual acts. The homosexual was acquiring his own identity and drafted a new a set of bylaws for a yearning, earning union, a bill of rights for homosexuals that is virtually identical to the agenda of the homosexual movement today. Ulrich traced the cause of sexual inversion to a biological mishap in early embryonic development during pregnancy that resulted in a female soul becoming entrapped in a male body, thus creating a third or intermediate sex. In such cases, one's innate sexual, psychic, and emotional attachment to members of one's own sex betrayed one's physical anatomy, including the genitalia, he wrote. The German jurist has some unique views on the nature of the of same-sex attraction. He argued that the love earnings practiced was superior to solitary masturbation because it involved an I and a thou, that is, the earning and his beloved, and because it produced a higher level of love in terms of both physical release and emotional gratification. Ulrichs also promoted the theory that a delicious passion in the form of a magnetic current animal magnetism went through the body of a earning whenever he made physical contact with an attractive young man. Earnings were driven to embrace and cling to such persons and to touch their sexual parts intimately, in spite of the fact that they made sex, that the male sex organs are completely useless for this kind of intercourse, he said. However, since the object of the earnings passions was not endowed with a female orifice to accept the male sexual organ, other parts of the male body, including the anus, must be used, he explained. Ulrichs admitted that sodomy was an anesthetic act, but he said it was no more disgusting than the ordinary conjugal act. One of his many accurate observations concerning same-sex relations was that, historically speaking, earnings have always put a high premium on large male genitalia.
with regard to possible health hazards connected with anal penetration. He said that science and medicine had established the fact that sodomy was not any more dangerous than ordinary intercourse between a male and a female. And female. However, Ulrich always took care to point out that there were other ways and means besides anal penetration sodomy that the earning used to achieve sexual satisfaction. To these opinions, there were obviously many objectors. In one medical journal, an anonymous reviewer detects Ulrich's belief that the anus, which is meant to by nature for deprecation, be made a place of amusement for the male members, for the male member to make use in case of necessity of the various parts of the body as makeshift for those who are that are missing. The fact that the length health of the Canado's earning is seriously and incurably threatened by this abominable act is not taken into consideration by the, this half-mad author. The reviewer said, Homosexuality in the law. Simmons did not share all of Ulrich's reviews on the topography of homosexual attractions. For example, he believed that a man with normal sexual appetites might acquire the taste for homosexual pleasures when isolated from the company of females, as in the case of military barracks or prisons. Nevertheless, he enthusiastically embraced Ulrich's and Kraft Abing's and Lombroso's beliefs that homosexual acts should be decriminalized. In the problem of modern ethics, Simmons gave considerable space over to Ulrich's arguments that against the legal persecution and social ostracism of sexual inverts, whose only crime was that they could not feel sexually as the majority feel, because they find some satisfaction for their inborn want in ways which the majority dislike. Sexual inverts had to be mastered by a different standard than other men. Ulrich argued, he proposed that society should leave nature to take her course and leave her earnings to take them to take themselves, leave them earnings to themselves. What then should the law be as with regard to sexual inverts? No different from other men, Ulrich answered. Consensual sexual relations between men should not be de- should not be criminalized unless violence is involved. Public decency is offended, or in cases of involving an adult and an underage boy, although on the last two points, his writings reveal a decided equivocation. Ulrich insisted that since the homosexual inclination and an earning was natural to him and could not be altered. Society should not sentence him to a life of forced sexual abstinence, but let him act out his passions as he will. Such an enlightened approach would permit the earning to develop voluntary, wholesome, and sexually satisfying and possibly permanent relationships with other men. Ulrich wrote he was convinced that once people saw the 
sublime side of uranium love and the loyalty, devotion, and spirit of sacrifice practiced by earnings toward their partners, they would, in their, without hesitation, approve of homosexual relations. Simmons, on the other hand, appeared to be more realistic and less optimistic concerning the ability of sexual inverts to establish such edifying and permanent bonds. In his memoirs, he acknowledged that homosexual relationships were inherently unstable due to the absence of marriage and children and a common life. However, all was not lost, he added, because this left the parties free to form new alliances as they desired with no harm to anyone. On the question of predatory sexual inverts, Simmons agreed with Ulrichs that only old debauchees or debauchees or half-idiotic individuals are in the habit of misusing boys. Although Ulrichs came from a long line of Lutheran ministers, he rejected Christian, he rejected Protestant morality and blamed the plight of the earning squarely on the shoulders of Christianity. Like Simmons, he rejected the idea that the Holy Scripture, Holy Scriptures condemned homosexual acts or that the biblical directive to increase and multiply had any relevance in modern society. Ulrichs dismissed the latter argument with a Malthusian quip that habitual portions of the globe are rapidly becoming overcrowded. <sighs> that ha- with the Malthusian quip that habitable portions of the globe are rapidly becoming over- overcrowded. Simmons agreed that with that assessment and added that the sterile acts of inverts were beneficial in the present state of overpopulation. As for the churches. Prohibition of Homosexuality, Ulrich claimed that the writers of the New Old and New Testament were scientifically ignorant of the existence of the third sex. Homosexuals were not acting against the natural law, he insisted, but in following, by following sexual instincts that were natural for them. Ulrich demanded that the church stop tormenting the conscience of the earning and start teaching a sexuality without sin. Like while at reading jail, Ulrich took upon himself the mantle of Christ and wrote that he too had been persecuted, exiled, defamed, and proscribed. Catholic priests may voluntarily take a vow of celibacy, Ulrich said, but it was absurd to doom inverts to such a fate. We maintain that we have the right to exist after the fashion in which nature made us, and if we cannot alter your laws, we shall go on breaking them. He said, with these words of defiance by Ulrichs, Simmons brought his defense of homosexual, homoerotic love in it to a close. Homosexual erotic love into a close. The influence that Ulrichs had on Simmons was extraordinary. What is even more extraordinary is the degree to which Ulrichs' theories on the third sex had permeated the Victorian consciousness, at least among the upper classes by the start of the 20th century. For example, in her book, Oscar Wilde, 
and his mother, a memoir, 1911, Anne Dumpy, the Comtesse de Beaumont, an acquaintance of Oscar Wilde, waxed solemnly over Wilde's regular passions, irregular passions that she attributed to his feminine soul that inspired his artistic genius, but also was responsible for the lust for strange, forbidden pleasures. She confessed that she recognized this tragic mix-up of nature the very first time that they met when she beheld his feminine soul, a suffering prisoner in the wrong brain house. Simmons' American hero, Pope Walt Whitman, in his closing pages of a problem in modern physics, modern ethics, Simmons devoted a special section to the homoerotic verse and prose of the American poet Walt Whitman, 1819 to 1892, with special attention to his poem, Calamus, found in Leaves of Grass, and more prose passages taken from democratic vistas in praise of democracy as a new religious ideal of mankind. The two men had engaged in a lively exchange of correspondences for two decades, although they had never met. Simmons' affection for Whitman bordered on idol worship. As for the main self-promoting Whitman, already a cult figure in America, Brooks suit. Brooks said he was always happy to accept an to accept another weaver of fresh laurels for the imaginary crown he wore on his head. Although Whitman, unlike Simmons, was born into a large working class family and received little formal education, the two men actually shared much in common. First, they were both slow fruit, that is, they did not come out of the homosexual out to the homosexual life until early middle age, and then only to a close circle of friends. Secondly, they shared a they shared a natural they shared a mutual enthusiasm for young, virile, butch-type sexual partners, and an open disdain for effeminate faggots. Both men were avid cruisers and diarists. In the 1850s, Whitman kept a notebook that listed the names of young working men whom he had prospected along with details of their personal life, such as their age, marital status, and looks. Whitman liked his sex rough and ready, and unlike Simmons, appeared to have no aversion to sodomy. Although Simmons and Whitman both had serious affairs, neither man was monogamy-minded. Whitman was adapted, juggling more than one young lover at a time, a practice that often led to petty quarrels and resentments. Lastly, and most importantly, both men embraced and propagandized and fought for a new homosexual ethos based on democratic principles that transcended class, religion, race, and nationality. The ever-romantic Simmons was absolutely besotted by Whitman's poetry and writings that extolled the virtues of manly love, athletic love, and the high 
towering love of comrades. And this American and Simmons saw another sexual visionary like himself in 19th century America as some kind of sexual frontier where the homoerotic ideals of Whitman were hardly welcomed. Whitman, of course, knew better. American common law was no more friendly towards sodomy, anal penetration, than the English anti-buggery laws from which it was derived. Even after the death penalty for sodomy was eliminated after the American Revolution of 1766-1776, harsh legal punishments remained, including public exposure in the pillory, fines, prison time, or loss of property. What is more important, homosexual behavior, especially sodomy, remained an ignominious crime against God and country in the eyes of the American people and a vice that needed to be repressed by society. Among the most vociferous opponents of King of Whitman's smitty, smutty poetry were the Philadelphia Society and the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Naturally, Whitman never confided to Simmons that he had once been the victim of a vigilante brand of American justice for committing a homosexual rape of a young, on a young schoolboy. The alleged incident that came to be known as the Southhold or Sodom School affair, or simply the trouble, was reported to have occurred in 1841 when Whitman was age 22, was a schoolmaster in the small town of South. Southhold, on the far tip of Long Island. He was a boarder at a, of a local family and, as was the custom of the times, shared a bed with one of his young students. On January 8th and January 3rd, 1841, Reverend Ralph Smith, a Protestant minister, denounced Whitman and for the crime of sodomy from the pulpit. A group of angry citizens presented with evidence of bloody objects went hunting for the young school teacher. They found him hiding in the attic of the Corwin residence. They dragged him out of the house, tarred and feathered him, and rode him out of town on a rail. Whitman appeared to have, gen have a genuine affection for Simmons even though he sometimes became irritated when the Englishman tried to pressure his American friend into admitting that he was, like him, a sexual invert. But Whitman would not be wheedled out of his great secret. Finally, in 1890, after years of Simmons' sexual inquisition, of Simmons' general inquisition, Whitman exploded and wrote Simmons an indelicate and untruthful response in which he rejected the damnable inferences that he was such a person and that he had a gaggle of six illegitimate offspring to prove it. Although Simmons was probably hurt by Whitman's lie, he did not press the subject any longer and continued with his correspondence from across the sea until his death three years later. Simmons collaboration with Havelock Ellis. 
1892, Simmons, anxious to have a medical physician affirm his advocacy of the homosexual life, began a collaborative effort with the 33-year-old pioneer sexologist Henry Havelock Ellis, who was at work on the first of a seven-volume opus, Studies in the Psychology of Sex, 1897-1910. Unfortunately, Simmons died in 1893, leaving Ellis to complete sexual inversion on his own. However, anyone acquainted with Simmons' writings on homosexuality can see that his influence on the book was substantial. In his autobiography, My Life, Ellis admitted that prior to his correspondence with Simmons, the subject of sexual inversion that had interested him less than any other topic because he had known very little about it. The original version of Sexual Inversion contained the complete text of Simmons' Greek ethics, portions of modern ethics, and many of his object of his observations and comments on various aspects of homosexuality. Since the 1895 wild trials made the publication of their completed manuscript in defense of homosexual practices problematic in England, Ellis secured a German publisher in Leipzig. Sexual Inversion was published in 1896 under the title Das Contraire Geschlecht Geschlechtsgefühl, The Contrary Sexual Feeling, and bore the names of both authors. In November 1897, Ellis managed to execute and to secure the first English printing of the controversial work. It was still published under joint authorship. However, Simmons' executor, Horatio Brown, brought out almost the entire first printing out of deference, brought out almost the entire first printing out of deference to the sensibilities of Catherine Simmons and the Simmons family. When the next printing was appeared, Simmons' name was eliminated altogether and Havelock Ellis listed as the sole author. By this run-in with Simmons as by this run-in with Simmons' wife and heirs appeared to be the but this run-in with Simmons' wife and heirs appeared to be the least of Ellis's problems. Ellis was drawn into an extended legal battle over his book that was condemned as homosexual pornography. The courts eventually declared sexual inversion to be obscene and ordered all remaining copies destroyed. Nevertheless, Simmons' selection of Ellis as his partner in crime proved to be a rather prophetic choice for Havelock Ellis became one of the founding fathers of modern sexology and a precursor of the Keynesian sex liberation movement of the late 1940s. Dr. Ellis' entire world revolved around sex, romantic sex, the chief and central function of life, ever wonderful, ever lovely. He himself, however, was unlovely, a rather unattractive man with a slightly effeminate demeanor. Ellis, who saw himself 
as a sexual visionary, believed that Victorians were too obsessed with traditional religious views on sex, i.e. marriage, family, and conventional heterosexual sex, and needed to be permitted, needed to be persuaded to expand their sexual horizons and introduce greater variety into their sexual repertoire. Ellis's radical views on sex were a reflection of his radical politics, or perhaps it is more accurate to say that his radical politics were a reflection of his radical sexual views and practices in line with the Nietzschean dictum that the degree and kind of person's sexuality reach up into the pinnacle, reach up into the ultimate pinnacle of his spirit. Like Simmons, but more so Ellis, was intimately connected to the radical socialist groups, including the Fabian Society and a small but influential coterie of feminists, Darwinists, Malthusians, eugenicists, and sexual inverts. In many ways, Ellis's public campaign against Christian morality served to mask his own sexual inadequacies and fetishes. From his early years, he was a habitual masturbator, and his frequent bouts with impetus led him to bypass normal male-female coitus in favor of acts with more erotic symbolism, such as urolognia. He was not a homosexual, but he did marry one, a confirmed lesbian and fellow radical named Edith Lees. Their union proved a disaster for both. Ellis, like his wife, took on many female lovers during his lifetime. His most notorious affair was with Margaret Singer, whom Ellis met in 1914. She later publicized his works in her birth control review. It comes as no surprise then that he was in favor of open marriages eh, in which both men and women could freely engage in extracurricular sex. Nor is it surprising that his series of sexual liberation extended to include sexual inverts, sexual inversion and apologia for homosexuality. The Ella Simmons text was of sexual inversion, although written over a hundred years ago, is quite modern in its polemics of in favor of homosexuality. Crap Evening's theories of sexual inversion of homosexuality as an inborn disease or acquired vice are dismissed in favor of the view that homosexuality is simply an inborn variation or sport on the term that on the norm that is, is, is incapable of being modified. Although Ellis used the words homosexual and sexual invert interchangeably, he thought the former a barbarously hybrid word and disavowed having responsibility for it. Ellis translated sodomy in modest Latin terms, emissio membri, in anum hominis, Vel mulieris. It references to animal studies and human anthropological patterns were used to sustain the overall premise of the book that sexual inversion harmed no one, including the invert himself, that the invert should be permitted to indulge his natural sexual appetites, and that society reaps the benefits of the special artistic 
and intellectual superiority possessed by sexual inverts. Ellis presented 33 selective cases of studies designed to illustrate the validity of his arguments in favor of sexual inversion. However, the use of the term case studies was, apparent, was patently dishon, patently dishonest as it gave the impression that they were the result of Ellis's professional clinical studies with his patients. They were not. Ellis graduated with a tumultuous education, graduated with the minimum education necessary to receive a medical degree and had no specialized training in psychiatry or psychology and never had a medical practice. Ellis did acknowledge that Simmons provided about half of the case studies. Other self-avowed homosexuals, just like Edward Carpenter, wrote up their own sexual histories and gave them to Ellis for inclusion in the book. View of the sexual inverts in the study admitted to the practicing of sodomy. All defined themselves as manly, not them, not themselves as persons, not use, not effeminate. All they said, all said they appreciated the opposite sex. Indeed, all portrayed themselves as paragons of birth, personal and civic virtue, high-bred, refined, and sensitive. Ellis's writings, like those of Simmons and Weil, provide us with a fairly broad prospectus of how proponents of homosexuality attempted to sell their homoerotic wares to the predominantly Protestant urbanized population of Victorian and Edwardian England. And although it was not the intention of the authors, they also reaffirmed directly and indirectly that English society as a whole continued to view homosexual acts and the emerging homosexual person with the same degree of horror, same degree of disgust, horror, and intolerance experienced by their Cromwellian and Calvinist forebears. The sexual invert of Oxford may have been more learned and more on masculinized than London's lower-class Mollies and Marianne's of the previous century, but they were no less shunned and abhorred as being subversive to church and state, nor did the Englishman stand alone in his aversion to homosexual relations. The prosecution of earnings in Germany, thanks to the prolific writings of Herr Karl Ulrichs, the self-avowed German Erning, to whom the reader has already been introduced in connection with the writings of John Addington Simmons, we have a fairly extensive record of how Germany's anti-sodomy laws were, were promulgated in the years leading up to the end of the First Reich and the founding of the Second Reich under Kaiser Wilhelm I in 1871. Historically, the German-Prussian state had strict anti-sodomy statutes that were based on the 1532 Penal Code of the Constitutio Criminalis Carolina under Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. The provisions of paragraph 
143, as interpreted by Prussian courts in the second half of the 19th century, stated that all unnatural practices between men, Bidunaturlich Unzucht, included sodomy or acts leading up to sodomy, that, but excluding mutual masturbation, constituted a felony and were punishable by three to six months of imprisonment or less. Other German kingdoms, notably Hanover, Oldenburg, Thuringia, Wurttemberg, Braunschweig, Saxony, and Bavaria had sodomy statutes that were based on the more liberal 1804 Code Napoleon. Homosexual acts per se were not prescribed, were not prosecuted unless rumors were involved or the public peace was disturbed. In the riddle of manly of man manly love, Ulrich's magnum opus work on homosexual life and death in and about Germany under the First Reich, he presented a number of important and criminal trials involving earnings that took place between 1860 and 1869. One of the most controversial trials cited by Ulrichs took place in September 1864 in the Tyrolean region of Austria near the southernmost tip of Germany. A 43-year-old Catholic priest was arraigned on multiple charges of the rape of a minor, crimes against nature, sodomy, seduction, and fornication. These crimes were reported to have taken place over a period of 12 years. In addition to these violations of the civil law, the priest had also violated church law. Not only had he broken the, his vows of chastity and celibacy, but he had also committed sacrilege by using the confessional to solicit sexual favors from young male penitents. The pastor was brought to trial on September 3 before a five-judge panel at the Boston, community, at the Boston County Court. The trial was closed to the public. Seven of the 17 boys with whom the priest had sexual relations were subpoenaed to testify. It is unclear if the 12-year-old boy he raped was called as a witness. It took only one day for the judges to reach a verdict of guilty. The priest was sentenced to the maximum punishment allowable under the law, nine years in a prison with hard labor to be made more severe during fast days. Sentences ranged from two to four months for some of the priest's older accomplices. In addition to the Tyrol case, Ulrich cited nine others that included Protestant as well as Catholic clergy who were charged with charged either with homosexual solicitation of adult male partners, usually soldiers, or the seduction and corruption of young boys. In the connection in connection with the latter category, it is interesting to note that how little the strategies of predatory man boy lovers have changed over the years. The clerical pederasts of the mid nineteenth century Went, without, went where the boys were. That is, they sought out their prey in schools and orphanages. Convictions in these cases do anywhere from a week to three or four months in jail. In general, all of the cases 
appeared to have been isolated incidents with no connections to any organized ring of clerical pederasts, nor is there any evidence that their numbers were greater than non-clerical offenders in the general population. The infamous Zastro case, as shocking as the Tyrol case and others involving clerical sex abuse were, they paled into insignificance when compared to the case of Karl Ernst Wilhelm von Zastro, whose trial opened in Berlin on July 5, 1869. It was a criminal case that involved the brutal attack, sodomization, and mutilation of a young boy and the suspected murder, sodomization, and mutilation of a second boy. Ulrichs took an extraordinary interest in the case, although he denied having any contacts with the accused. From the numerous articles he collected on the trial from Berlin papers, he formed a profile of the accused and made a detailed analysis of the motivations for the crimes, all of which appeared in his final chapters in More Man-Manly Love. Zastro, a painter and former militia lieutenant, was a wealthy member of an influential and noble family. Little is known about his formative years except that his mother and maternal grandfather were reputed to be of unsound mind, an argument used by Zastro's attorney at his trial. Ulrich reported that Zastro had been dismissed from dismissed from his military unit and banished from Dresden because of his disreputable lifestyle. In his work, Ulrich described Zastro as an effeminate, refined, general, pious earning with a cold, colorless facial expression that hid a secret passion. But Ulrich was uncertain if the accused was a manling or a weibling or a mixture of both. The story began on January 17, 1869, when Zastro was picked by the Berlin police in connection with the attempted murder, rape, and sexual mutilation of a five-year-old, a five-year-old Emil Hank. The boy had been sodomized, bitten on the face, and freshly circumscribed. Circumcised. His wounds to the rectum were such that the child was unable to hold a bowel movement. After the second assault, his assailants tried to strangle him. When that failed, his attackers tried to stuff him into a healing duct to hide or suffocate the child. Amazingly, the boy survived, although he remained in critical condition at Bethany Hospital for several weeks. This was not the first run-in that Zastro had had with the Berlin police. On the same day, two years earlier, on January 17, 1867, Zastro had been taken into custody and questioned about the brutal murder mutilation of a a 15-year-old baker's apprentice named Corny. The boy had been sodomized and then a wooden stake was driven tip was driven up through his rectum into his lungs. The body 
His body was found in the in Panker Brook. The coroner reported that the murderer had attempted to cut out the lad's rectum and in fact did cut off the boy's private while he was still alive and just then fled carrying the pieces of flesh with him. Unfortunately, there, there was not enough evidence against Zastro and he was released. The legal proceedings against Zastro in connection with the Hank attack began on July 5, 1869. Public officials bearing, fearing a public riot and lynching held his trial in a room at the jail rather than transport the accused to the courthouse. The child Hanka was present at the trial, but he was unable to make a positive identification of his attacker. The trial was closed by the public, but the judge permitted was closed to the public, but the judge permitted members of the press to be present. In the early publicity surrounding the trial, no reference was made to Zastro's homosexuality, as the police were aware of his unnatural sexual appetite. Later, when they reached, when they searched Zastro's residence, they found a copy of Ulrich's book, Memnon, the Lone Voice, in Zastro's library. When Zastro took the stand, he said he was indeed a member of a third sex, as described in Ulrich's writings, and that he always had a sexual attraction for handsome, manly men, manly forms, but never for women. In a letter written to a friend from his jail cell, he wrote, I feel I am an unnatural criminal. I indulge in my favorite sin too often. Commenting on Zastro's claim that he felt isolated and cut off from society and that he had never formed any real relationships, Ulrich retorted that all earnings in Germany shared the same sentiments, that they were all loners. Among the expert witnesses called in to testify at the trial was Dr. Karl Westphal, a prominent German psychiatrist who coined the term contrary sexual feeling to identify homosexuality is in contradiction to testimony presented by their by other forensic doctors. He stated that Zastro's homosexuality homosexuality was an inborn condition, not an acquired vice, and that it was not the result of debauchery caused by habitual masturbation or other external factors. Although these, although three witnesses placed Zastro outside the district when the crime was committed, there were two items, a walking stick and a handkerchief with his initials stained with blood from the victim, linking him to the crime. However, this was only circumstantial evidence, except for the fact that a forensic specialist was able to match the teeth marks found on the child's face with an imprint formed by Zastro's teeth, the defendant might have gone free yet again. After Zastro's attorney played the, played the insanity card, the judge permitted a three-month postponement of the trial in order to, that a more thorough evaluation of the accused, accused mental state 
be undertaken. A trial resumed in late October 1869. On October 29, the jury returned a unanimous vote of guilty on charges of forcible rape and bodily harm, but Zastro was found innocent of the charge of premeditated attempted murder. The judge sentenced Zastro to 15 years in prison plus a 10-year probationary period under police supervision following his release. Death took Zastro in February 1877 before his sentence was complete. Ulrichs, a lawyer who was known to take up the legal defense of accused homosexuals with or without their solicitation, had taken up Zastro's case cause not to defend his actions, but to make sure that the accused was not deprived of his constitutional right to a fair trial simply because he was a homosexual. There is little doubt that Ulrichs saw, saw the Zastro trial as an opportunity to expound his own theories on sexual inversion and to attack Russia's anti-sodomy laws. The main theme that extended throughout his writings on the Zastro case was that the accused was driven to commit his crimes by certain pathological circumstances that were unrelated to his urinism, but aggravated by society's hatred and contempt for the earning. In Book 8, titled Incubus, Uranian Love and Bloodthirstiness, 1869, and Book 9, Argonauticus Zastro and the Earnings of the Pietistic Catholic and Freethinking Parties, 1869, of Man-Manly Love, Ulrichs reported on 15 criminal cases that he believed were related to the Zastro case. After reviewing these cases, Ulrichs said he had come to the conclusion that in the case of certain individuals, pathological emotional disturbances appear to be possible, be they chronic or only of a moment's duration, whether accompanied by actual visions or not, where the individual is forced into behavior of wild cruelty and bloodthirstiness by an unconquerable inner impulse. He believed that Zastro had suffered from such a condition. In making such a supposition, Ulrichs became one of the few homosexualist writers of his era to touch upon, knowingly or unknowingly, the existence of a phenomena commonly referred to today as homosexual rage. Indeed, in Man, Manly Love, Ulrichs revealed a great deal more of the darker aspects of the homosexual psyche than he probably unintended to. Intended to. In all his public pronouncements, Ulrichs consistently portrayed the earning as a feminine, gentle creature of high moral character. Yet his book was filled with incidents of violence of all kinds, and dead bodies are strewn all over its pages. There was the story of Johann Nieser, a gentle pederast who axed a 12-year-old boy to death to prevent him from telling his stepfather that Nieser had repeatedly sexually abused him. There was the case of Joseph Kraft, 1868, a very feminine homosexual who excelled and womanly occupations who strangled his beautiful young wife with his own hands 
because he was a reminder of his sexual inadequacies. There was the tale of a trio of suspected earnings who seized and partly castrated a retired soldier in the town of Klein Corn, 1869. There is a story of two earnings raping an Austrian soldier, 1849. There were several tales of earnings who were murdered by their sex partners, such as Herr Lindemann, who was murdered and robbed by his young lover, Koenig, 1865. And then and there are numerous references to earnings who are killed by their own hand by poison, pistol, or hanging out of fear of public exposure and who are victims of blackmail or extortion by criminals who populated the sexual underworld of which these desperate men were a part. Fritz Krupp, the Oscar Wilde of the Second Reich, on November 22, 1902, news of the sudden death of Friedrich Fritz Alfred Krupp, the Canon King and heir to the great German industrialist munitions fortune, made headlines around the world. The official story was that Krupp, age 48, had died of natural causes, a stroke. However, no autopsy was performed as required by law, and there was no official inquest into his death. Also, his coffin was sealed before his wife and two young daughters could pay their respects in breach of custom. The Canon King's funeral in Essen was, as, as, as expected, a real folk fest, carried out with great pomp and fanfare as befitting an illustrious, an illustrious son of the Reich, complete with a glowing testimonial from Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was attendance with a large contingent of his military entourage. The unofficial story was that Krupp had died by his own hand. His alleged suicide was attributed to a series of public exposés on his pederastic affairs with the young boys in Berlin and in Capri. Articles and lurid photographs of Krupp's homosexual trysts with underage Italian boys on the Isle of Capri and at the Hotel Bristol in Berlin were already in circulation in Germany and abroad at the time of his death. Although sodomy continued to be a criminal offense throughout the entire German Reich under paragraph 175, the former paragraph 143 of the earlier Prussian Penal Code, in cases involving powerful public figures like Krupp, the police had, as a matter of course, simply been forced to look the other way. In Italy, Krupp was permitted even more latitude to indulge his sexual fantasies since homosexuality per se was not a punishable offense under Italian law. Nevertheless, it was in Italy and not Germany that here Krupp's difficulties began. When Krupp, an amateur oceanographer and avid yachtsman, first established his vacation residence on the Isle of Capri, on the island of Capri, he arranged for young native boys to be sent to his luxurious suites at the Christiana Hotel. Then, perhaps acting on a whim, the physically unappealing but congenial and Midas rich eccentric decided to create a new religious order dedicated to pederasty. Krupp created his temple of worship at the Grotto of Fra Felice, 
the an above-ground isolated ocean cave on the far side of the island, named after a venerated 16th century hermit. The young monks who guarded the grotto gates wore Franciscan robes as uniforms, so to the charge of gross immorality against the new fellowship, one could add the grave sin of blasphemy. And this concludes my reading from the Rite of Sodomy today. I'll continue in my next podcast. And no more, no time for a reading from the Catechism. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.